True strength comes from diverse and inclusion. It makes kids better, families better, it makes the game better. We are not done because the work is not done. We have barriers to break and knock down opportunities to give. Those are the words of Willie O'Ree, who in 1958 broke the color barrier as the first black hockey player in the National Hockey League. 60 years later, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. O'Ree remains an ambassador of the game and a pioneer for equality. His story and his voice, along with the stories and voices of other influential black players, front office members, and fans of the game of hockey, all deserve a platform as we promote diversity and inclusion within the sport. You're listening to Kane's Cast, and this is Amplifying Black Voices. Thank you for joining our second episode of our Kane's Cast series, Amplifying Black Voices. I'm Mike Maniscalco. And I'm Michael Smith. We hope that you will take the time to tune in and listen to the stories of people of color and people around the National Hockey League who, how they have been on a path to get to this point, what it means to be here. And this episode is, I think, going to be entertaining, uh, also insightful. I know that Michael and I truly enjoyed talking to Carolina Hurricanes General Counsel Nigel Wheeler, who has lived quite the life and also has set a path and a goal and achieved it of becoming a general counsel in the National Hockey League. Yeah, his his story, I think, is uh, is incredibly fascinating. And, and to be completely honest, I didn't know a whole lot about it going into the conversation. Um, Nigel started with the Hurricanes um, in the spring of 2020, just when everything uh, with the coronavirus pandem- pandemic was kind of flaring up and uh, we weren't coming into the offices anymore. Um, the, the season was on pause. So we, we haven't really had a chance to, to, to really get to know each other aside from just, uh, you know, some passing conversations. So to sit down and have uh, uh, this chat with him, I think was, um, was very rewarding. And I think you'll find it rewarding as well. Well, Michael, as we continue to uh, amplify voices in, in the sports world. We are very lucky that we can literally, uh, in this case, go down the hall and speak with the general counsel for the Carolina Hurricanes, Nigel Wheeler. And, and Nigel, thank you so much for for taking the time. We appreciate this. And uh, when we look in, into how you get here and, and then the, the stories that, that got you here, uh, we've got some time to do this. But when we look at uh, your, your path, is there a moment or was there a, a place where you're like, this is what I want to do. I want to be in, involved in sports. And, and then the question is, how do you get there? Was there ever that moment or you knew right away this was what you wanted to, to get to at some point, including being a lawyer? Yeah, so I, I kind of took a roundabout way in getting here. Um, I entered law school in my 30s 
And that came after a, a career in broadcast journalism. And then after that, I was actually in a rock band, uh, a reggae rock band. We're like a broke man's 311 meets Red Hot Chili Peppers. And we toured for about five years and I kind of quit everything and, you know, was my mom's worst nightmare at that point because she was like, you have no insurance. What am I to do with you? Um, but after that stint of being on the road, decided I want to go to law school and knew from the get go, I wanted to be in sports. What I didn't realize were, was that getting into sports was incredibly difficult. And so because I think I was a little bit older and because I was so focused on it from the get go, I was kind of making contacts, trying to meet folks, with the NHL, with the NCAA, um, with every sports organization that was out there and went and ultimately became somewhat friends. I'd say an acquaintance with a GC and an NBA franchise. And he said, just keep grinding, you know, do your best work, get the best job you can and keep grinding, keep networking. And ultimately it's going to work out. So went to law school, went and then went to a law firm and worked at a law firm for about five years or so, the whole time still putting out feelers with the hopes that I'd get a sports job. And then ultimately kind of gave up because I had put so many feelers out there and it was just crash and burn, crash and burn, crash and burn. And ultimately through a deal that I did with uh, Tom Dundon's like finance arm, ultimately landed me an opportunity to interview for this job. And so, you know, for anyone listening who kind of wants to get into this world, you just can't give up. And the, it, I think if you just do good work and put your head down, then ultimately it will work out. So, yeah, it was a roundabout way to get here, but I'm thrilled to be here now. And a lot of it, too, is about just being in the right place at the right time. Right. I mean, it just so happened that um, you worked with with Tom Dundon and then. Uh, there was the opening here and it, it got you the interview. So it, it, it's a matter of uh, of keeping your head down, of doing the work and then just uh, kind of um, finding that right place at the right time. Right. No, you're totally right. And I think, again, you know, you just have to be relentless in your pursuit. And I am a big uh, visualization guy from my sports background. So I spent a lot of time just literally seeing myself walk into I wouldn't say Don Waddell because I didn't know it would be Don, but Don Waddell someone's office and kind of saying, here I am. Um, and just seeing that over and over and over again. And somehow it's like the energy or the universe or God or however you look at it just makes it happen. Um, so yeah, you're right. It is right place at the right time, but a lot of it is you got to be prepared. And then you also have to be willing to jump. You know, I was living in Dallas at the time. We had just bought a house and just dumped thousands and thousands of dollars into this house. And my wife, I told my wife, I said, Hey, I have this opportunity to go work for the, for the, for the Canes. And she initially said, Oh my God, babe, we literally just spent, you know, all these umpteen thousands of dollars on our house. You should go for it. Screw the house. Let's keep moving. So, you know, having that type of support is huge too, because I was moving her and an infant son and a three-year-old daughter, you know, halfway across the country. Um, and without her support, I certainly wouldn't be here. Well, Nigel, when you talk about the grind, that's, to me, one of the things to focus on. How important do you think it was for you in your path that you weren't afraid to go from Berkeley to Florida to Spain to travel the world, that you were willing, if, if that's where the job was, if that's where I wanted to be, I'll worry about the insurance, Mom, a little bit later, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna blaze this path. How much did the moving around, uh, especially early on, 
kind of set your tone of, I know that I've got to put myself in the best position to succeed. And if that's in California in October, but in Virginia in December, then that's what I'm going to do in order to succeed. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that type of travel early on really did help. And it's funny you asked that question because I never really thought about it before. Um, but you know, I was bouncing around a lot between the age of 18 and 30, I guess, what was I in four or five different States? I was international for a while. I bounced around a lot and a lot of the bouncing was in, was in nowhere towns. You know, I was in Salisbury, Maryland for a while, Anaheim, California. I mean, there's not a lot happening in these towns. I guess there is Disney world in Anaheim, but that's it. Um, and so I think a lot of it is number one it's great because you figure out there are things that you can pull from every region in the country. And that has been huge, you know, in Salisbury, Maryland, I was, you know, it's, it's where the, they have chicken farms there. And I was sitting, you know, at the time I was a news reporter making no money, um, literally begging. I wouldn't say I was begging for food, but there were a lot of times when we would show up at places with the hopes that there was food there and we hoarded it. I mean, we were like crazy people because we take sandwiches, yep. put them in our pockets and stuff. And my mom at the time said, man, you you must be really working out hard. And I was like, no, mom, I'm just not really. eating." Um, so it's, but those type of experiences that you take from places like that are huge. And, and you also realize, yes, it may be a different area code, but if you keep your friends and your family in your network, you can always reach out to them. And if you're really having a hard day, you can connect with them as well. So, yeah, I think early on that really, really did help. And it also made me feel like, hey, I can go make a life kind of anywhere that we land. So you started as uh, a news reporter and worked in that field for, what, about seven years or so? Yep, seven, um, eight years. That's right. And then... What do you think is the most important thing you took from uh, that set of experience leading into uh, the next chapter of your life? I think it's probably two or three main things. I'd say the first thing is it teaches you resilience because as you guys know, when you're on air and you mess up, it, it it's a hit yeah. and it's real time. You know, there's no way to go back and take back a word that you messed up. I remember a lot when I first started and this is in Salisbury, Maryland. And this is going to sound really bad, especially in the context of this interview. <laughs> I was doing a report and I was trying to figure out all these different ways to refer to the American flag because we were talking about it was this really off the wall, small market story. But we were talking about the American flag pole being put in like a downtown shopping center. And at one point I said, and the stars and bars are flying high. And I had no idea at the time what the heck I was saying. Yep. And then within seconds, you know, the, the guy who was anchoring the show said, do you realize you just referred to the Confederate flag? And my face just, I mean, I'm black, so it's not going to really turn red, but it turned purple <laughs> um, because it was terrifying. Yep. And that was one of thousands. You know, luckily, I didn't make any other things that were talking about the Confederacy, but almost all of my mistakes were pretty bad. Um, but it does make you bounce and it does make you learn and it does make you become resilient in those type of situations. Well, let's get to the sports fan and, and the, the desire to, to get into the sports world. Where did it start? Was it, were you always a sports fan? Were you an athlete growing up? What, where did the, uh, the fire to, to get involved in this crazy business come from? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it really stems from, I would say, from when I was a kid. You know, I was a football player and a baseball player, um, ran track for fitness. I actually was on the rowing team in college. Um, so I, I just always loved it. I also did play-by-play -play in color when I went to UC Berkeley. And I love that aspect of it. But what I really loved about that gig is it got me access to the athletic director, got me access to the players and taught me a lot about the business of sports. And I realized pretty quickly that the sports side of it, um, especially the business side was really, really compelling. And so that kind of fueled the fire. But again, you know, from the get go, I thought, this is not really possible. You look at the number of sports teams, you know, right now in the NHL, there are 31 teams, soon to be 32. You think, man, you're talking about maybe 40 jobs with GCs and assistant GCs, and you go around the leagues and you're always talking about 30 teams and you think, all right, we're talking a couple hundred jobs in this country. Um, and as you guys know, when you have those narrow of options, you just keep thinking, I don't know how I'm going to fit in. Um, but, you know, somehow it works out, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that it did. Nigel Wheeler is joining us, general counsel for the Carolina Hurricanes, as we're amplifying voices in sports, or at least hope to do so. You know, Nigel, we, we like to think, you know, every year things advance and, and get better. But I look back to when you started uh, just doing broadcasting at Cal Berkeley, uh, when you're doing play-by-play -play or, or color commentary, I'm sure that you look around the booth and notice that, uh, especially on the play-by-play -play side, uh, that there's definitely one look that is is in that booth, and you'd like to think in the last 20 years it's advanced in, in all levels. How much do you think that we have moved forward, especially in those narrow positions? I'm glad you brought that up, you know, of general counsel, of things we don't think about, front office jobs or play-by-play -play jobs. Do you think that we're taking the right steps? Are we getting better to be more multicultural or we're getting more minorities, at least the opportunities to, to get in these spots. And is there more that we can do or are we on the right path? I mean, I think we are making progress, but a lot of progress still needs to be made. And I think the main issue is access. And I mean, put it this way, the way that I ultimately was set up for this job is that I was at a large, predominantly white, predominantly male law firm that predominantly did energy work. And I was kind of doing an offshoot, not related to energy, but I was still, I was doing public finance and general finance. So I was in a really narrow world. And I was, there were, at the time I was there, I was the only black associate. And so, you know, in the years before, I, there had been a couple more black associates, but we're talking about half a percent or maybe 1% of the total law firm um, were, 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 were people of color. I mean, especially black folks. And so in order to get to the next step, which would be to come to a place like Carolina or to go to any other professional club, you have to be in that position. But there are so few people coming through that pipeline that it's very, very hard to even have the bodies there to pick from. And so, you know, my, my, I, I'm with you, you know, in the broadcast world, you see Tariko, a handful of other yep. uh, of black guys who do play by play, but it's few and far between. Um, and I think the key again is, you know, Syracuse has such a great broadcast program. There's so many other programs that are great. And I think the key is you have to have more people through the pipeline, coupled with the fact 
that more people need to know that these jobs are accessible. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of folks, at least, you know, I do some mentoring here and there, and a lot of folks in the black community, they don't even know that these jobs exist. And I think the key is to get out there, to reach out as much as possible and to say, look, there are finance jobs on the sports side. There are assistant general counsel jobs that are available on the sports side. There are stats jobs that are available on this side. And in your world, you know, there are all these other gigs that are available too. You can go on an intern and grind. And I think for most folks, I think, it, you know, for and I'll use you guys an example. I'm assuming if, if you have, an, you know, in a non-COVID world, if you have someone, regardless of their color, if they come to you and say, hey, I'm going to grind, I'm going to work, you'll probably give them a shot. Yep. And I think that's true of, of, of the whole world. But again, it's, it's all about access and it's all about knowing these jobs are available and then knowing who to call in order to get these jobs. Is it about representation as well? And, um, you know, exposing young children to um, the fact that, hey, you know, I can be this when I grow up, you know, looking at someone like uh, Kamala Harris, uh, vice president right now, uh, the fact that she is uh, a female showing all these uh, little girls around the United States that, hey, I can be this when I grow up. Is it is it a matter of that as well, getting uh, people of color uh, in these positions to show that, hey, you know, things like this are possible uh, because here is someone who's doing it now? Yeah, 100%. I think, I mean, for example, my, I, I grew up, I would say relatively middle class, but I was always one step removed from the hood. You know, my grandmother was in a, a really economically depressed area. Mo a lot of my family live um, in pretty rough neighborhoods throughout the country. And I remember as a kid, I used to visit my grandmother who lived in this community called the country called Crest, which was, it's a misnomer if you've ever heard it. I mean, it is, it's a rough neighborhood. And so I would go and visit her and I'd be hanging out. You know, here I am, kind of this middle class, uh, uppity uh, black kid walking around with kids who are literally, in some cases, you know, trying to stay alive. And the only thing that you saw in this community in terms of job prospects were basketball player, rapper, um, pimp, or some kind of other criminal endeavor. And I remember just how strange it was because, you know, again, I, I grew up in Orange County, California, and my white friends were talking about being investment bankers and analysts and things that I never would have heard of or had access to, but for the fact that I was living in that neighborhood. So I think the key is really just to make sure that kids of all ethnic backgrounds and all socioeconomic backgrounds know that there are all of these different gigs in the sports world and just the world in general that they can do where they can use their mind and also be excited by the work. And then also potentially, you know, if you want to be in sports, also be surrounded by, by, by sports folks as well. Nigel, I love going back to the university side of things. You're right. There are so many great programs out there that will crank out broadcasters or schools, as you know, lawyers. I just want to go to the side and what Michael brought up when young kids see you or see Mike Tirico or Gus Johnson uh, they're thinking, well, how did they get there? How important is it for kids to reach out? And when I say that, not just to, I mean, great to send you letters and Mike Tirico letters, but when you go to school, reach out to somebody who's there to, to see, hey, I'm going to get here, but how can I get here? Can I force my way into an internship? And when I say force, a good way, like I'm here, I'm good enough for this job. How do I get this? Is there a, 
I don't want to say a right way or a wrong wrong way to do it, but is there a way to say, this is what I want, and I'm going to keep knocking on your door until you open it up for me? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. I mean, I, I mean, you guys know how difficult it is in the broadcast world. So for me to get my first broadcast job, um, I I made a tape, and I was thrilled about this tape because I had I had bribed editors and, and bribed camera people with cheesecakes because that I knew I could make a damn good cheesecake, <laughs> and it was. Cheap. I can make it for like five bucks and I was broke. So I went all around the newsrooms where I was interning and I gave folks a cheesecake and I said, you know, please cut this package for me. Let me drop this voiceover down. Please help me, you know, get a tape together. And the beauty is, I think if people see that type of drive and that type of passion for the work, they're going to help you. Um, so I, I think the key is for anybody who's listening reach out to the folks who you see in the positions that you really want. And then also manifest your way there. Dream about it. Get to know everything about that person. Learn their background. Um, you know, I was a big Bob Costas guy, so I learned everything about Syracuse. I, I found out how short he was. There's all these little <laughs> things that I learned about Bob Costas. I, I watched all of his Olympic coverage, and I went back and I watched it again for mistakes, for anything that I thought was strange. Um, and, you know, the guy is a really smooth dude. So I was like, why is this transition this way? And why did he do this camera turn this way? Yep. And he missed that camera turn, but he came back. I mean, I was technical in terms of, of, of really seeing what Costas was doing. But that's the type of thing I think that I would love to see in someone who potentially wants to work here. And that I think anyone else in the world would want to see in a potential candidate is someone who is out there who's willing, who's driven. Um, and who also just needs a shot. And sometimes that's what it is. And, and, and I think you're right. I think you, you, the key is you say, look, I'm not going away. Um, and and you, you develop, say, 30 to 100 contacts and, every, and, and trying not to be irritating. I realize this is a fine line, but trying not to be annoying. Every three or four months, you find a reason to hit them up. And obviously with the Canes organization, it can be simple. You know, when we were streaking before last night, I don't know how time data this was, but we were we were super hot at one bad night. Hopefully it turns around soon. But you can just send an email saying you guys are looking great right now or some, you know, for me, it would be a legal story that maybe involves the COVID pandemic. Yep. You could send me an article saying, hey, check this article out just to know that you're you're thinking about that person. And to go and to get you back to top of mind for that person as well, but it's a long, slow, slow process. And the the, the paths that you can take are so varied because, like yours, you started in in news reporting, and then you mentioned that you uh, were in a band and you you toured internationally with that band. I want to hear more about that uh, because yeah. that's that that I think is a, a fascinating part of your journey. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh... I'll, I'll tell you this. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. <laughs> I can believe that. <laughs> uh, and it was awesome because you, there are so many people who dream about doing something like this. And I was in a weird position because I was moving up, you know, you guys would understand this. I was moving up markets. I was in Dallas, which was market four or five, something yep. like that. And I was poised to jump to either a network job or a New York or LA job. And so I was talking to my agent, and we were kind of going back and forth and I had some personal stuff going on. And ultimately I said, you know what? I'm never going to get this shot again to go on the road. And we got signed to a small record label and they said, here's some money. Here's a tour vehicle. Here's your support crew. And we just went for it. Um, 
and we had a lot of fun and it taught me a tremendous amount. Number one, um, I got to visit nearly all of the 47 lower states. And, and I didn't, and I'm, I'm not talking about you just touch down. I'm talking about you're there for weeks at a time um, in places like Laramie, Wyoming, and, you know, random, no, like Boise places. You yeah. just never spend that much time. Or you think about Jacksonville, Florida, we would go and we would post up for weeks at a time. And so it taught me, number one, that you have to all be on the same page. Um, bands, I think, break up mostly because of personalities. It's usually not because of lack of talent, because if you're on the road and you're making an income from being on the road, that means your band is pretty good. Yep. The problem is you just have heads that butt, and sometimes they become nonstop pains in your you-know-what. And so for us, I think that was ultimately the issue. We had a lot of infighting. Uh, and we had some financial things go wrong. And that's mostly because you have a bunch of kids running around, not knowing what they're doing with money. Um, but with all that said, we had a blast and we had an opportunity for years and years to be on the road, to meet thousands and thousands of people, to get our music out there. And, and we, and, and in, in the process, we all learned so much about ourselves and we learned that you truly can survive on nothing. Um, and, you know, we, we did everything from, I mean, I remember one time we were in New Mexico and we were broke. I meant like no gas, no food, nothing broke. And that night, and this is going to seem a little silly now, but it's true. It was dollar beer night. And I remember there were like eight or nine of us and we didn't have $9. <laughs> and so we had to figure out a way to get the money to go drink beer. We're like, well, we can drink beer and that'll give us, you know, obviously we'll, we'll be a little drunk and we'll get the calories. Like that's how, that's how hungry we were. And so we went and we busked, we went on a corner. I think we were in Albuquerque and we just played and we sold CDs and we just kind of worked it and ended up making like 150 bucks by just standing on the street corner and strangers coming up and giving us money. So that those type of stories are the ones where I'm like, I can pull from that for the rest of my life. That's a lot of beers. Um, it was Wait, a lot of beers. Yeah. <laughs> can, can, uh, is your music available to find anywhere still, or is it kind of lost yeah. to history? No, no, it's easy to find. The band was called Egress. It's E-G-R-E-S-S. So if you just Google Egress and my name, you can find it. That's you can awesome. find it. So, and, and some of the music I think is great. I mean, I really, I'm, I still stand by it. Some of it, I don't know. It got out there and <laughs> I don't know. I wish I could kill it, kill it now, but I can't. <laughs> what, uh, what instrument did you play? I sang and I played a little bit of guitar, but I was a singer in the band. Okay. That's right. awesome. Well, one of the things that I like about your path to get here, um, and, and this is about you, Nigel, but when people ask, you know, how did you get here? I always say if a door, don't close any doors because you never know where a contact from, you know, someplace will get you there. And is that maybe one of the, the things that you notice a lot of folks feel that the path has to be straight A to B? And, yeah. and a lot of times it's, as we know, nothing in this life is A to B. There's always something in between. So is that value, if you were talking to somebody today, you know, if, if you want to be a broadcaster, if you want to be a lawyer, but an opportunity presents yourself to do something, not necessarily that, but in those fields, don't say no to that because that, yeah. can, that can still someday down the road is going to, to either toughen you up for a situation or it's going to introduce you to somebody. How important is that, do you think that, 
you've got to break that thought of I've got to go A to B in order to get to this job or, or this life that I want. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, I, I when I was in a band, you know, drinking Jägermeister and wondering where we were going to sleep, I had no idea that the skills I got from that would ultimately get me here. Um, and and again, that's why I kind of go back to the idea of focus or manifesting and people have vision boards. They have all kinds of different ways because, you know, I've heard this expressed a long time ago that your mind can't separate reality from fantasy. And I think if in your mind you say, I am a broadcaster, or I am a hairdresser or whatever the heck you dream of. I think that if you constantly have that in your mind and focus on it and meditate on it, then every other thing that you do, even though it may be making a left and then the right, then 180 degrees and 360 and wondering what the heck you're doing, it will all teach you that, hey, I'm still headed toward this end goal. And I think that the key is to take all those opportunities in and to reflect on them. You know, oftentimes I'll talk to my wife and she'll have just a terrible day at work. She works, um, she works at a swim school. And so a lot of her stuff is customer service. And so people will come to her with crazy stuff, issues that are really non-issues. Yep. And she'll say, blah, she'll say, this happened and blah, blah, blah. And this kid did this and this infant pooped in the pool. I mean, it'll be a crazy day. And so at the end of the day, the way we now approach it is we say, but what are the two or three things that we can pull from it? And I think that's the key throughout life is to take all of those failures, to take all of those knockdowns and to think about it in those terms. I, and what's funny is I really started thinking about it that way when I started really studying the career of Michael Jordan. And, you know, Jordan is one of those guys who always talks about all the shots that he missed. But thank God he missed them all because he made so many as well. And so that's kind of now my approach is that I just really have to reflect on the things that went wrong. How do I get better? And then also just be grateful for where I'm at right now and, and be grateful for the fact that somehow through all these twists and turns that it all landed me here. So how did you decide um, then that you wanted to maybe explore the area of law? Um, and how did that um, I know you said you did some work with, with Tom Dundon, uh, but how did that lead you into, um, kind of exploring sports and then, uh, ultimately working for the, the, the Carolina hurricanes? Um, well, I knew I had the sports bug pretty much from the get go. And I knew that law was a way to get me there. I, I, like I mentioned before, I knew a GC, um, in the NBA, and he, he kind of gave the, the advice that everybody gives for every, all these jobs, network, 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 and didn't just keep networking. Right. Um, and again, I think it's one of those things where I, I had really focused kind of on the major leagues. I, I, I had looked at the NHL, MLB, NBA, and NFL. And then all of a sudden, and I had considered MLS and some you know different type of, of leagues as well. But I said, look, I kind of want to get into, I want to get in with the big boys if possible. Um, and again, I never had the expectation that any of the work I did for Dundon would translate into this. And like you guys said, it's a lot of crazy timing for it to all work out. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think it's just a matter again, of just grinding it out of focusing on kind of what you want. And then, and this is advice I, I, I try to give to folks who come to me being very, very focused in your approach. You know, I had a kid the other day ask me, well, how do I get a job in sports? And I said, well, first, you know, pick a league or pick two leagues. And then once you pick a league or two, 
then get to know the assistant GCs. And if the assistant GCs won't talk to you, talk to some vice president the vi- and then just keep going down the food chain until ultimately you find someone who you can correspond with. And then once you start corresponding with them, simultaneously, you should have two or three things working on the other side just so you stay at top of mind. And so that's that's what I did is I just kind of put feelers out there, um, got rejected over and over and over again, and then ultimately one hit. And it, luckily it was in, I, I love the city of Raleigh and I love this team. And right now we're playing great. So that makes it you know even better. And so I, I think the key is you just got to get in there, get in there. And then, and then at the last second, be able to move. And, and, and that's, for a lot of folks, that's what it is. They like, oh, I dream of doing this really cool job. The job comes and then they don't do anything. And I think you got to be ready to roll, you know, financially ready, mentally ready, physically ready, because you may get in there and have to move and do all this other stuff and be dealing with, you know, actually moving into a new space. I think the key is just when you get the call, be ready to leap. Nigel, what's the biggest difference being the general counsel for a an NHL team for the, for the hurricanes versus the work that you were doing as an associate, as, as an, a counselor before that in your previous law job, is it similar things or is this a completely different world that you're in as far as the law? Well, it's similar only in the sense that the key legal foundation that I have from law school and from the law firm, I use those all the time. And that's just critical thinking, uh, basic things like proofreading, making sure your cross-referencing is good, looking at case law in certain cases, uh, always kind of staying on the cutting edge of legal issues, legal concepts that affect this industry. So that I would say I carried through. Other than that, it's completely different. Um, And the main reason it's different is because every single day we're doing something totally different. We have And instead of dealing with one or two very narrow things, you're dealing with 60 to 70 narrow things. And what I mean, I mean, COVID is like a great example because COVID affects every single thing that that we do here. It affects ticket sales. It affects player interaction. Um, I'm the contact tracer for the team. So when, and you know, we've had six guys get sick this season. When a player gets sick, I have to interview them and talk to them about it and find out kind of who are all the other folks that could possibly be affected by this and you know how long they think that they've been sick and kind of all that nitty gritty stuff. And so that's something I certainly never would have done at a law firm. And then in addition to that, a lot of it is you are, um, you are the go-to guy for so many different departments that you really have to learn the business. Like at this point, I'm really trying to learn the ticketing business and the finance side. I'm trying to learn the food and beverage side. Uh, I'm also trying to figure out some of the hockey ops side because those are all things that are that I need to pull from all of those different, different buckets in order to do my job effectively. So I think the key is once you get into a sports organization, you just have to be really, really flexible and, and like a student all over again. Yeah, and I imagine, um... You know, like like my job, like uh, Scalco's job, I imagine no day uh, in your position is, is quite similar to the one that came before it or the one that comes after it. It kind of keeps you on your toes in terms of uh, what you're doing on a day to day basis. Yeah, no, it's a blast. I mean, it's a blast, and especially working with a GM like Don. It's a blast because Don is one of those guys who will kind of throw as much at you as you can take. Um, 
And I think that's great. And he doesn't, and, and no one in this organization, no one handholds or any of that stuff. They're basically like, we're hi- you're hired to do a very specific task. Um, well, it's supposed to be specific, but it's very broad. <laughs> yeah. And and figure it out. And so for me, that's kind of the greatest thing in the world, just to have that ability to be able to get in there and to try to do your thing and to do the, you know, the best possible work that you can. What has been the best aspect of this job? You've, you've gotten into sports, you've gotten the the general counsel position here. What's been in your uh, 11, almost 12 months, what's been the the highlight for you so far? I'd say the, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty big hockey fan. So even though it's with COVID restrictions, I love going to the games. I mean, I think the games are awesome. And even though it's just our staff, uh, I, I think it's great watching those games. In addition to that, I really, and I haven't, the weirdest part is I've never seen an event here. You know, I've never seen a concert or Disney on ice or any of the things that we do so well at this arena. I haven't seen any of them, but I really do like the, some of the contract work on the event side because it's totally different and kind of exotic and weird because you have artists who ask for weird things. And, um, and it, it just makes it, I love that you can go from literally watching a game to trying to figure out what's going on with a, a headliner concert. And then a few seconds after that, like trying to coordinate a, a circus, you know, manifest. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, it, I mean, just the range of the things you do here, I mean, it's it's insane, and it's also really, really cool. Oh, all right, seeing you were in a band and you traveled, have you looked at some of these riders and thought, why didn't I ask for that when I was touring? Yeah. Or do you go back and go, I was in a band. You're not going to get, you know, 58,000 gallons of, of pomegranate juice. It's just not happening. I know. I mean, I think about that all the time. What's funny is, we played with a couple of pretty big artists and I knew just through random stuff. I'd known a few artists and they all say the same thing. I'm sure you guys have said it. They're like, well, it just shows us that the venue is doing everything that they need to do. And I was like, what, what does that have to do with like 97 green M&Ms and like eight rare pieces of steak and four medium pieces of steak? I mean, all this crazy stuff. Yeah. You're right. Like looking back, I was like, man, we should ask for way better stuff <laughs> other than just please give us any food. We need carbohydrates <laughs> and hydration, please. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, you haven't been able to see an event here. Uh, you started, I guess, when when everything was was really shut down. So how has that um, how was that adjustment kind of uh, acclimating yourself to a new organization, um, a new league, a new town. just kind of area of business, a new town when everything is not like it ever was before. It's surreal. I mean, it's it's kind of like a zombie apocalypse that I'm running through. And I know that a lot of people who are dealing with COVID feel the same way. In a way, it's it's really advantageous because I, I, I get to spend the time really diving into different topics instead of being at 100%, we're kind of at 30%. Um, and so there are things now that have, that have come onto my plate that certainly wouldn't be on my plate but for COVID. Um, and in addition to that, it, it does allow me to spend a lot more time talking to folks because people are here, they're around, they're not you know totally slammed doing events and dealing with sporting events simultaneously. Um, as far as the city goes, you know, Raleigh luckily is a, an absolutely beautiful place, but we're big outdoors folks. So we love going to the lake. We love, we, you know, we just got back from the mountains. We love all the things that the city has to offer. But again, it's weird. It's very strange, like not just being able to go to a bar and have a drink or you, if you go there, you're socially distanced and you're wearing a mask. And 
you know, it's, it's just a strange time, but I know it's a strange time for, for everyone in the world right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned being a hockey fan. Is that something that you kind of came to uh, later in life or is it something that interested you from uh, an early age? So I was a big, so I grew up in Orange County. Yep. So I was a big Kings fan. And then when the Ducks came, I was a big Ducks fan. Okay. Um, and with the Canes only, you know, because of my relationship with, with, with the Dundon folks kind of started paying attention to the Canes a few years back, um, really got in the team. And now I'm, you know, I'm here and I'm, I'm of course all in. And, and, and again, it's such an exciting year to watch them. And I just, I just want to hopefully we keep, we keep the train moving down the tracks in a positive direction. So in doing this podcast, part of it is uh, is amplifying, you know, stories from uh, influential black people in this organization and around hockey. Um, what can uh, what can the game do to maybe grow itself in the black community, in the black community? Because that's, uh, you know, maybe one thing uh, right now that uh, is is a bit lacking compared to the, the other major sports leagues. I think it's a couple things. I think number one, the sport is very expensive at a youth level. You're talking about thousands of dollars worth of gear. Ice time is extremely expensive. And in a lot of areas, especially areas um, where there are a lot of, you know, where there are a lot of black, where there's anybody, there aren't that many rinks. And so I think the first thing is the league and maybe it won't be at the NHL level. Maybe it's at the juniors level or, or in some other capacity. There has to be a way, number one, to get more gear to more people at a reduced price or for free. And number two, there has to be an active outreach program so that hockey is presented as an option. Um, because a lot of folks, you know, at least black folks that I, that I know, my family included, say, oh, that's just a sport they play up in Canada. You know, they have no idea that there are rinks all over this country and that you can get ice time, that there are youth hockey teams, and that if you kind of progress right and you get into juniors, that you can have a shot at making it to the league. And so I think that's really the number one key is just getting access um, to folks and really getting either subsidizing or just greatly reducing the cost of gear and figuring out something to do in terms of, of, of ice time because the ice time is just so, so very expensive. But I think if you start there, then you get folks who, number one, they understand the game of hockey. They understand the rules. And then, you know, you'd, you'd obviously have a lot of hockey players, but we know the numbers. A lot of those folks are going to go into hockey, but then maybe go into hockey ops or go on the business side because they'll understand and they'll love the game. To that end, how important is it just to get people to watch the game, to get them into the game? And how can any of these leagues, I mean, we're, we're here at the NHL level, but how can we get the message out, come to a game. If you don't think that you like it, or if you don't know about it, come to a game because we can't do it right now because of COVID. But when fans are allowed back in the building, I think back to those opportunities, just come in through the door and judge it for yeah. yourself. And, and how can the league, that's for me, Nigel, one of the things I think of where the league kind of says, Oh, we just advertise and we know who likes us as opposed to no, let's advertise to everybody, get as many people as we can in to sample this product. And I've always said, you come into this building for a game and, and this place is rocking. You're going to be a fan when you walk out of it by the end of it. How important is, is that exposure to especially communities of, of color and of minorities just come to a game and, and see it for yourself. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's the, it's the, I think hands down the best live sports product there is. 
And so many things are happening off the puck. Um, some of the best things are happening off the puck, actually. And, you know, again, you're talking about guys who can skate. I, I, I Again, I, I've been watching the, the NHL for long enough to just see how, I mean, I was big like Luke Robitaille guy. And to see how much just the skating alone has progressed and just the stick handling has progressed. And, and guys doing, you know, crazy lacrosse style goals, hitting pucks out of the, I mean, insane stuff that you say, there's no way you could have practiced that. And there's no way that even if you had practiced it, that it actually worked. If you did it a thousand times, you may do it once. Um, and so that aspect of the game is so compelling. I think the key is if you get folks through the door watching, you know, here, looking, seeing just people being pounded against the glass, um, all the other exciting things, the fighting, you know, I mean, I, you know, people kind of kind of go away from the yeah. fighting aspect, but it's exciting, you know, and, it, and it's one of those things where you get out there and you see these people skating um, and you see them kind of doing their thing and setting offenses and setting defenses. And it's just, I mean, it's a beautiful sport to watch. Um, but, I, but you're right. I mean, I know that in the past we've had student groups come. I know that we've reached out to HBCUs and other organizations kind of on the business side um, and then also reached out to just, you know, MBA programs and undergraduate programs, at least throughout this area. But I just think we need to do better. And I know we've had a lot of those conversations, you know, our, our, our GM, Don Waddell, who I've mentioned, and a lot of our, the other vice presidents here, we sat in, in rooms trying to figure out a way to make the sport broader, not only for black folks, but for everybody in this community. Because because you're right, Mike, I mean, if, if folks come in and they see the game, they are going to be hooked because it's it, it's that infectious and it's that cool um, and it's that beautiful to watch watch these guys skate. What can you tell us, uh, uh, you know, from an internal perspective, what the Hurricanes uh, are doing on the diversity front? I know there is um, a diversity committee that that's spearheading a lot of the organization's efforts. But uh, what have you seen um, in your almost, I guess, a year here now uh, that the Hurricanes are doing to promote diversity uh, and inclusion in the workplace? Well, I think the first thing we're doing is we're talking about it actively. Um, at the VP and higher level, we've had several conversations about it, and we realize that the, the, the way to start is to really make sure that internally we have a plan and to make sure that people are having these discussions in a really robust and an open way. Um, because a lot of folks are afraid to talk about race um, because they're worried that they're going to alienate someone or they're worried they're going to say the wrong things or they're going to trigger something and it's all going to fall apart. But we have been talking about it openly and honestly, and I think that helps. Number two, like I mentioned before, we need to spend more time, and we've talked about this, going to HBCUs, going to undergrad schools, going to high schools, going to, even at the elementary school level, and showing all folks, including people of color, there are opportunities here. You know, obviously, if you want, if you're an athlete, you want to try to work hard, make the league. That's great, but there are way more opportunities for everything from entry-level positions to ticket sales, um, to general business things, all the way up to, to my position um, and various other positions that are, that are here at the arena. So I think the key again for us is gonna be, we just have to keep grinding. In addition to that, we've talked to the league a lot. We attended a seminar that just talks about race in general and kind of how it affects all aspects of life, including, the, um, including our job here. And so I think the key is we just have to keep doing it. And I think 
we will eventually get to a place too where we also think about it in terms of vendors, um, of folks who are coming in the building, because I think it needs to be like an eight prong approach because if you don't hit it on all levels, I think you're gonna be lacking somewhere. But the only real, the only real way we're gonna get there is through slow and deliberate work, um, which we're starting to do now, but we can do better. And I think we'll continue to do better because the organization cares about it. Nigel, how important is that first conversation though? Because like you say, it, it might be awkward for some. I'm, I'm sure it might be awkward for you where you walk into a room and you look around and notice, okay, I know every question's going to, to come at me in, in some way, but how important is that first conversation? Because as you just really laid it out, it leads to all these other conversations of what more could we do better, not just for in the front office, but for vendors. But how do you set up and how important is that first, we have to have a meeting and discuss what can we do better for diversity? Well, I think it's critical. And I think the, the main thing is, and, and I talk to my wife about this all the time, is there are a lot of people who know of black people, but they don't know a black person. And there's a big difference because you're talking about, have I had drinks with this person? Have I ever dated a black person? Have I ever been to their house? Do I know their kids' names? Have I held their babies? Am I a friend or is it someone who's an acquaintance? And I think that whenever I talk to someone who says, well, what can I do? I said, well, first of all, if you already, if you have a black acquaintance, get to know them like actually dive into their life and find out. And, the, and the, the beauty is, is that most black people will tell you, they'll say, hey, this is, these are the struggles that I'm dealing with. Let's talk about your struggles. Um, and the key I think is to, it, and you're right, that first conversation is tough and it's gonna be a little bit awkward because again, I think we're living in, I think a lot of folks are living in kind of this acquaintance mindset where they assume because there are black folks around them that they are friends and there's a big fundamental difference. And I think the key is have that conversation, make it open and extremely honest, lay out everything, every concern that you have. And I mean, every concern, everything from criminality to schooling, to sexuality, all the things that you hear about that are, you know, that black folks are labeled with address them. And I think if those things are addressed, you can at least start the conversation and find out why we're, you know, why you and I are having this conversation and why the country has been, you know, essentially raging for the past couple of years, trying to, trying to bring these issues to the forefront. Yeah. We, we, we started having these, uh, conversations on the record, um, in September, I believe it was, um, when a lot of the national conversation was, uh, focused on race. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we spoke to Larry Perkins about it, who has, um, I think, uh, an incredibly unique perspective because he's kind of been on the, uh, the law enforcement side of it, but he's also black. So he's got these two things, these two sides that, um, you know, last year were, were, uh, were kind of diametrically opposed. Um, and what's it been like for you? Um, just kind of, um, you know, observing the national conversations that we're having. Is it encouraging um, that these conversations are happening and, and we're working to take steps? Um, what, what are your feelings about really what's transpired over the last year? Well, I mean, I think it is a conversation that, uh, that, that Black people have had in the Black community for a long time. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you straight. I am still... Um, I, I do whatever I can to limit my interaction with the police 
as I, and, and, and through a lot of ways. For example, when I lived in Dallas, we had one vehicle. And the reason and we could afford, I was a lawyer, we, we could afford multiple vehicles, but I knew that if I took the rail system or if I walked to work, you know, as opposed to driving, that would limit my interactions with police. Um, in addition to that, and this is kind of, this is very sad to say, but black people have to live a certain way in order to avoid certain interactions. And I hate that I have to be cognizant of that. I hate it for my son, you know, who's nine months old, but you know, he's half black and half white, but he will be identified as a black person in this country. And so I think that the, that the key to moving forward is for a guy like me, for example, I need to start opening up and having more conversations with police officers, for example. You know, we have a few staff members who are married to police officers. And for me, that's a very weird dynamic, you know, and I, and I, and it's, I realize, hey, these are, these are great people. Um, and, 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 I, and like a lot of folks have said, I think we're talking about a very, very small percentage of people who have done bad things and happen to be police officers. But the vast majorities are good people who are working really, really hard to keep us all safe. So, you know, for a guy like me, I've done a lot of soul searching because these type of things, racial profiling, driving while black, these things have happened to me my entire life. And I just was like, this is my life. Deal with it. And then also, I'm extremely grateful for all the things that have happened in a positive way. And I say, thank God I've made it this far because I've had friends who ended up in situations where they were harassed by the police and ended up in jail. Some of them in a deserving way because they did something wrong. Some of them, I don't really think they did anything wrong. And I've been a guy, you know, I've been stopped for signaling too long. Um, I got stopped for riding my bike on the wrong side of the street. I've been stopped countless times. And I was just like, this is my reality. But the key for me is to take as many steps as possible to be able to limit my interaction so I can stay, stay safe um, for as long as possible. Now, while I'm saying this, just know internally I'm thinking that's a crazy thing to have to say. And I also know that I, like I just mentioned too, I still need to dig deeper and have more conversations with police officers and have and, and really think about this critically as opposed to letting fear kind of drive my my daily my, my daily movement. I, I I have to follow up and I you know it's it's 2021 and I can't believe I have to ask this, but how how tough is that to you have to think at a situation where Michael and I can walk into a room and not think twice about it and you have to think six, seven ways about walking into that same room or walking into a business. Is it as you say, there's a fear to it, but is there also a frustration? And, and how, how do you stay so calm? How can you stay calm? Or is there a, a, an outlet for you? What would it be? Well, I mean, it, it is frustrating, but I, I try not to dwell on it. And, I, and, and, I, and I'll be honest with you guys. I mean, it, it's just my life. You know, it's like if you, if you got black skin walking in America, it's, we, we, we still live. And I, I hate to say this, but we still very much live in two different worlds. And, and we're perceived in, in such different ways. I try to think about it in terms of look how far we've come because 40 years ago, I would never be in this position. Um, 40 years ago, I probably, I maybe would be able to go to a law school. There's, it, it seems like highly unlikely though, based on the history of it all. And so at the end of the day for me, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful for the sacrifices that my grandmother made, that my ancestors before that made. I'm grateful for the fact that, you know, I have 
a, a pretty clear slave lineage. And I think about them all the time. And I think, man, if I had been around in the 1700s, I'd be working in a field in East Caney, Texas. And I go, and look at me now. Like, look at all, look at, you know, you're talking about Larry Perkins. Look at me and Larry. Like, we are vice presidents at a sports organization and, and the NHL is predominantly white. And so we have at least gotten into this, gotten to this level in spite of all the things that go wrong. So I try to just reflect on those things. Yeah, you know, at times it's frustrating. And I get, especially for people who are a little bit younger than me, they are, it's hot for them because they're walking around and, and they're, they're more concerned than a, you know, 40 something like me about what could happen if, if, if they interact with the police and something goes wrong or they pop off. Um, but again, like I've mentioned, I have developed all these different mechanisms to try to make sure that I'm safe, that I stay around for my kids and for my wife as long as possible. And with that said, and again, it's crazy that I have to say that out loud. I always try to just make sure that I keep myself safe, that I keep my kids safe, and that I also am always grateful for the life that, that I now have because it's a good life, and I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Well, Nigel, we are, we're grateful that you took uh, the time to, to talk with us and, and share your story, uh, that you're here. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having this conversation with us. Uh, we will, uh, at some point in time, get to know you, and it won't be over dollar beer night. We will try to find when we can all get out. Uh, hey, I'm buying. <laughs> we, we all, we'll, all, we'll all throw some rounds out there and go from there. But uh, we, we greatly appreciate it. And I just love the story of how you've talked about where everything you went, you took all the experiences and got you here. And as you say, you, you got to knock on doors, and, and you don't take no for an answer. And if you can visualize it, you can get here. And the best thing about you being here – is that people can see that you're here. And uh, going back to what Michael said, if somebody sees Nigel Wheeler as the general counsel of the Carolina Hurricanes, there's somebody somewhere who thinks I can do that job somewhere down the line for another team. So we greatly appreciate you taking the time. This was honestly an excellent conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Our thanks to Nigel Wheeler, the general counsel for the Carolina Hurricanes, for joining us on the second episode of Amplifying Black Voices. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I am very much enjoyed that conversation. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things when we look back on these conversations, when you pull out a story here or there, something that Nigel talked about is, you know, do you have a, a black acquaintance or do you have a friend who's black? And those are things where, again, we talk about conversations, and, and that's the whole point of, of this series that hopefully – uh, we bring for you where you'll have these conversations with someone at work. And again, it'll be awkward. It'll be difficult. It'll be probably that way for both parties at first, but that's how you get it going. And, and now the funny thing is when I look back on, you know, friendships that I've had over the years and I've, you can, can run down this, then you start going, well, were they, you know, was that a friendship or was it an acquaintance? And I am fortunate where I can say I've, I've had friendships, but at the same time, Nigel works right down the hall from us, and we didn't know his story until we sat down and talked to him. And that's what we hope happens, that yeah. you sit down and talk to somebody, and you find out their story. And what you're going to find out more often than not, that's the – I don't know if you pulled anything out of the conversation. One of the things that I pulled out of the story with Nigel 
we have way more in common. But it's one of those situations where I think everybody looks at the differences instead of looking for the common ground. And there's so much common ground. I truly cannot wait um, when it is safe to do so, when the pandemic is over and we are allowed to go out to get more. Uh, uh, just the stories of that he has and, and how he's gotten here. And I love how he said, if you visualize something, if you can see yourself doing it, you can get there. And for me, and you brought it up as well, what's great for the stories that hopefully we will continue to bring to you. But in, in Nigel's case, that there'll be someone out there who sees a black man as the general counsel for a national hockey league team. And as the saying goes, you, you can't believe it until you see it. Right. Well, you can see it. And our thanks to, to Nigel. What an absolutely fantastic conversation and cannot wait to talk to him where we can talk to him in person. Yeah. Representation is incredibly important. So to have him in the position of general counsel, to have Larry Perkins uh, in a position as a vice president in the organization uh, is incredibly impactful for uh, young black kids who see that and say, okay, this is, you know, this is something I can aspire to be one day. Um, I thought that uh, that part of the conversation was illuminating. I thought, um, you know, again, going back to what Larry had said the week before about uh, wearing a suit every day, Nigel kind of touched on it as well in that uh, his family is a one-car family because um, he deemed it uh, safer uh, if he just took public transportation and had to have less contact with the police. And, and yeah. again, this is... These are daily considerations that um, that I haven't had to make that that you haven't had Never. to make, and to hear it, you know, spelled out uh, again underscores um, just uh, the work that still needs to be done to eradicate uh, the systemic racism that's so ever present in our society. That's well said, Michael. I, if you're listening to these conversations and you have never once thought about what route you need to take to work or to get home, because you're trying to limit your interactions with someone that you feel should either A, be there to protect you, or you feel that there's going to be someone in your way impeding you from getting home the safest way possible. Uh, unless you've had that, you, I'll never understand it. But again, you hear it, and it makes you think, and that's when Michael says, we have to address this systemic racism, what's going on. But also, I'm going to take a lot of the positives out of, out of this conversation with Nigel of he just kept going and embraced the grind and knew what he wanted to be and was going to get there. And um, that's a story that uh, we're happy to share and, and would love to share more of it because I get the feeling we could have talked a yeah. whole nother hour just about everything else in his life that he's yeah. gotten to. I mean, we didn't even dive into the fact that he has an IMDb page. Yes, he does. Maybe that's a little teaser for a, a future conversation. I'm going to visualize some dollar beer nights with Nigel yeah. in the future. That's I will I will be right there with you, my friend. So thanks for uh, tuning in to this episode of Amplifying Black Voices. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please let us know. Um, and on next week's episode, uh, we're going to welcome in Matt Moorfield, who is uh, one of the ice technicians here at PNC Arena. He's one of the uh, the folks who uh, make sure the, the ice is in tip-top shape uh, for the players, um, and uh, I think you'll enjoy that conversation as well. Yeah, I cannot wait to share Matt's story of how he got from where he started to being an ice tech in the National Hockey League. So we thank you all for tuning in. For Michael Smith, I'm Mike Maniscalco. We will talk to you next week.